Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I'm the host of the podcast Revolution Z, and this is the 12th episode titled Vision, Central Planning, Markets, or What? First, a very brief appeal. I really need you to consider the possibility of supporting Revolution Z. To do that, you would go to the Patreon website, www.patreon.com slash Revolution Z. That's www.patreon.com slash Revolution Z. There you can find out more about the podcast, and if you choose to, you can uh, provide us a little material help, uh, which is very important to our continuing. But now, episode 12. In economies, stuff is produced and stuff is consumed. How much and by whom? Workplaces produce this or that. What and how much? We all have incomes. How much can any particular income purchase of any particular item? How does what people want to have match up with what workers want to produce? All these issues are issues of what's called allocation. Allocation is about how economic actors collectively establish relative worths. It is about how workers settle on what and how much to produce. It is about how consumers settle as individuals and in groups on what they want to have from society's products. Allocation typically occurs by way of markets or central planning, or a combination of the two. But can we combine either markets or central planning, or a combination of the two, with our preferred aims for the rest of the economy, which are equitable remuneration, self-managing workers and consumers' councils, and balanced job complexes, so that they all together become the key elements of our preferred economy? We need a mode of allocation that will work well with the other features of the economy we desire. Just briefly, remember that in prior episodes, we argued the merits of these various aims, and we also rebutted typical concerns about them. We argued that for income, we like the idea of people receiving income for how long they work, for how hard they work, and for the onerousness of the conditions under which they work, so long as they're doing socially useful labor. We also rebutted the idea that this wouldn't provide proper incentives, showing that, in fact, it provided exactly the incentives that were needed to induce work in the interests of society as a whole and of individuals. We argued that for decisions, we like the idea of what is called self-management, or people having a say in decisions in proportion to the degree that they are affected by them. We also rebutted the idea that this would diminish the quality of decisions, that it would lose touch with expertise, that it would yield outcomes that were inferior to outcomes accomplished by having those who were the best decision makers make the decisions. We made a strong case for why this, this approach, self-management, actually yields the best decisions. We argued that for the division of labor, we like the idea of balanced job complexes, which is just that each job should be composed of a combination of tasks such that the work that we all do is comparably empowering for us so that we are comparably prepared to participate in society's decision-making so that self-management can be real and possible. We also rebutted the idea that this would somehow diminish output and reduce the quality of output, showing that instead it would liberate fantastic productive potentials. Okay, that's all good, but however much we may wish to implement equitable remuneration, self-management, and balanced job complexes in a new economy, an economy also has to have mechanisms of allocation. 
Central planning was the choice of many self-titled socialist, but really, as we saw last episode, coordinator economies. Central planning is also, with only modest differences, used within massive production units like Boeing and General Motors to allocate diverse products and tens of thousands of workers among many venues. In central planning, a planning agency seeks to assess information from workers and consumers and then proposes inputs and outputs for all economic units. The units then consider their instructions, and they either carry them out or they register problems that they think will arise in their attempting to do so. The central planners then assess the predicted problems and issue new instructions, and the cycle repeats. It arrives at its conclusion when the planners no longer seek responses. The plans that they propose are now orders to be enacted. The process is down go questions to workplaces, seeking information. Up goes answers to planners. Down go instructions. Up go concerns and problems. Down go instructions. Up goes obedience. In practice, there are more details having to do with making it work well, but nothing that fundamentally alters the logic. Having been a key component of most capitalist economies, central planning has been subject to relentless criticism by advocates of capitalism who, unrelenting, who unrelentingly claim that central planning can't work. There is too much information to be communicated, the incentives are screwed up, and so on. Which criticisms, however, have for the most part been ill-conceived? First, in technical journals, but not in popular accounts, mainstream economists acknowledge the workability of central planning. Second, during a few decades of operations, at least according to the critical mainstream economist criteria, Soviet central planning worked rather well. Indeed, comparing the Soviet Union to countries with comparable development from its inception over the next five decades, for example, comparing the USSR and Brazil, say, the Soviet outcomes were superior in output development and in many other indices. Third, as noted above, huge U.S. firms, in many cases economically comparable or larger than small countries, have used central planning to internally allocate their workforces and internal products among their units for decades. And again, at least by mainstream calculus, they have done this quite nicely. That a massive public lie, which is that central planning can't allocate without disastrous results, could be told and sustained shouldn't be overly surprising. Consider the lies that workers can't do empowering work, or the lie that owners are highly productive and need to receive profits for workers to benefit. Clearly, massive lies routinely persist. But if central planning can get things produced and distributed, why not use it for our preferred economy? In central planning, workers and consumers must ultimately abide the instructions that planners generate. There is a narrow decision-making top and a wide decision-making bottom. That arrangement precludes self-management. More, central planners are not interested in having to overcome resistance from local units. Central planners, therefore, do not want workplaces and neighborhoods to be self-managed by workers who will resist planners' directives. Instead, central planners want to deal with people who have similar interests to them. In other words, central planners, who are a coordinator class, seek to communicate with others in the coordinator class. That is who they understand. That is who understands them. It involves no undue friction. For that reason, inside firms and centrally planned economies, the old familiar corporate hierarchy and centralized authoritative decision-making is vastly preferred and implemented. 
This is central planning subverting desires for balanced job complexes and therefore for self-management. Even if planners are honest, even if they are not immediately corrupted by their power, over time they reward themselves and people like themselves more than workers per se. Why people like themselves? Because the way they justify their higher incomes is by asserting their greater education, training, skills, connections, and decision-making responsibility. And if that justification is to be compelling, it has to be honored for all who have those credentials. And that means for those who centrally plan, but also for those who are empowered within local units. In other words, the central planners need local agents who will hold workers to norms that central planners decide. Their credentials must legitimate them and must reduce other actors to relative obedience. Central planning thus imposes a coordinator class to rule over workers, with the workers in turn made subordinate, not only nationally, but in each workplace. And that is why central planning is not an option for a truly classless economy such as the one we are looking to create. In that case, what about markets? It turns out markets too would subvert our other gains. First, markets immediately destroy equitable remuneration since markets reward output and bargaining power instead of only duration, intensity, and onerousness of socially valued work. With markets, you get what you have the bargaining power to take, not what is ethically and socially warranted. If I have a monopoly on information, skills, resources, equipment, venues, connections, or even on inclinations to rule, I have more bargaining power, and, as a result, I get more. If I am white or male, and society is racist or sexist, I have more bargaining power, and I get more. So, markets rule out equity. Second, markets force buyers and sellers to try to buy cheap and sell dear. They force us to each try to fleece the other as much as possible to ensure our own advance. We get ahead at the expense of others, not cooperatively with them. In market systems, nice doesn't pay. Nasty pays. Gouging, dumping, ignoring workers. These behavior patterns pay. And to avoid these behavior patterns is to risk being outcompeted and ultimately suffering extreme loss. Markets constantly pressure us to become less than who we should be in order to have more than what we should have. So markets generate antisociality, not solidarity. Third, markets explicitly produce dissatisfaction because it is only the dissatisfied who buy again and again, which is what marketeers desire people to do. For example, planned obsolescence makes the consumer dissatisfied with the product he or she already has. As the general director of General Motors Research Labs, Charles Kettering, who regularly introduced model changes for General Motors cars, put it, Business needs to create a dissatisfied consumer. Its mission is the organized creation of dissatisfaction. Fourth, and of massive consequence, prices in a market system don't reflect all costs and benefits. Market prices, at best, take into account only the impact of work and consumption on immediate buyers and sellers. And that, even, is mediated by their power. It does not take into account the impact on those peripherally affected, including, for example, those affected by pollution, or for that matter, by positive side effects. In other words, only the direct buyer and seller enter into the market exchange, not those affected at a distance. This means markets routinely violate ecological balance and sustainability, much less stewardship. 
Cars spew pollution. Energy generally heats the atmosphere and threatens survival. As a result, markets subject all but the wealthiest communities to a collective debit in water, air, sound, and public availabilities. Markets are ecologically unsustainable and life-denying. Fifth, markets also produce decision-making hierarchy and not self-management. This occurs not only due to market-generated disparities in wealth translating into disparate power, but because market competition compels even council-based workplaces to cut costs and seek market share regardless of the ensuing implications. Though the point is a little more subtle to see, with markets, in order to compete, even workplaces with self-managing councils, equitable remuneration, and balanced job complexes have no choice but to figure out how to gain market share, how to accrue resources with which to outcompete other firms. They have to figure out what costs to cut and how to generate more output, even at the expense of worker and even consumer fulfillment. Who in a self-managed council of all workers who all have balanced jobs, would want to, would agree to, and mostly would be good at cost-cutting that turns off air conditioning for themselves, speeds up production mercilessly that they have to conduct, lies to consumers, and dumps garbage on neighbors. It turns out, to get these and other similar things done, firms competing in markets have to insulate some employees from the discomfort that cost-cutting imposes. They have to cause them to feel superior to others so that those few people will propel the competitive steps at others and not at their own expense. In other words, to cut costs and otherwise impose market discipline, even starting with councils and balanced job complexes, market logic causes a coordinator class to emerge above workers, which in turn accrues ever more power to itself and obliterates self-management and equity. That is, under the pressure of market competition, any firm I work for must try to maximize its revenues to keep up with competing firms. If my firm doesn't do that, then we lose our jobs. So we must try to dump our costs on others. We must seek as much revenue as possible, even via inducing excessive consumption. We must cut our costs of production, including reducing comforts for workers and unduly intensifying labor. Forget about workplace daycare. To relentlessly pursue all these paths to market success, someone has to not suffer the pains that these choices induce, so that those someones will freely impose those costs. So even in a firm that is initially committed to self-management and balanced job complexes, if we must operate in a market context, our market roles will over time impose on us a necessity to hire folks with appropriately callous and calculating minds such as those that business schools now produce. We will then have to give these new callous employees air-conditioned offices and comfortable surroundings. We will finally have to say to them, okay, cut our costs to ensure our livelihood in the marketplace. In other words, we will have to impose on ourselves a coordinator class not due to natural law, and not due to some internal psychological drive, but because markets will force us to subordinate ourselves to a coordinator elite who we accept and welcome, lest our workplace lose market share and revenues and eventually go out of business. This flaw of markets, like the inbuilt flaw of the corporate division of labor, institutionally subverts our worthy aspirations. 
Some economists will claim that all these market failings are not a product of markets per se, but of imperfect markets that haven't attained a condition of perfect competition. But this is a bit like saying that the ills associated with ingesting arsenic occur because we never get pure arsenic. We only get arsenic tainted with other ingredients. On the one hand, calling for perfect markets ignores that in a real society, there is literally no such thing as frictionless competition. So, of course, we will always get imperfect markets. On the other hand, and even more important, it also ignores that the harmful effects of markets do not diminish when competition is made more perfect. They intensify. Historically, the closer economies have come to a pure market system, without state intervention, and with as few sectors as possible, dominated by single firms or groups of firms, and with as few unions as possible, the worse the social implications have been. For example, there have rarely, if ever, been markets as competitive as those of Britain in the early 19th century. Yet under the sway of those nearly perfect markets, young children routinely suffered early death, working long days in the mills of the time. Pollution was everywhere, garbage was spewed. The point is, well-functioning markets get various economic tasks done, but they do not promote excellence in any form. They do not resist, and they even facilitate, material, cultural, and moral depravity. As a result, seeking an economy that can deliver equity, solidarity, diversity, and self-management, an economy that can be classless, means rejecting markets as a tool of allocation. It may seem hard to even imagine, but if we are serious about our aims, the conclusion is inescapable. As a result, our allocation problem is that as could be seen in the old Yugoslavia and Soviet Union, even without private ownership of means of production, markets and central planning each subvert equitable remuneration, annihilate self-management, horribly misvalue products, grossly violate the ecology, relentlessly impose antisocial motivations, and unavoidably impose class division and class rule. This is precisely the kind of dynamic our approach to thinking about economics attunes us to. Particular institutions, in this case markets and central planning, having role attributes that violate our aims. The same held for the corporate division of labor and for private ownership of productive access, both discussed earlier. Their roles, too, violated the values we favor. Their roles, too, imposed upon workplaces outcomes contrary to those we desired. And that is why we had to figure out how to transcend them. And now we see that the same problem holds for markets and central planning, which we must also transcend. The title of this episode of Revolution Z is Markets, Central Planning, or What? It is a question. Our answer has to be, or what? Allocation is the nervous system of economic life. It is both intricate and essential. We can't claim to answer the question, what do you want for the economy, without offering a name for allocation. Put differently... To round out a new economic vision, we must conceive a mechanism that can properly and efficiently determine and communicate accurate information about the true social costs and benefits of economic action options. However, it must simultaneously give workers and consumers influence over choices proportional to the degree they are affected. It must promote solidarity. It must facilitate equity. It must support balanced jobs. It must attend to the ecology, and it must ensure classlessness. This is a tall order, and it will be the aim of the next vision-focused episodes in our podcast, Revolution Z. 
By way of reminder, I hope you will consider helping Revolution Z to persist and improve by supporting us. One way to do that is by promoting us, giving us visibility, giving Revolution Z uh, uh, access to friends, workmates, neighbors, people you know, people you interact with on social media. Tell folks about Revolution Z. Give it a plug. A second way to help us is to provide us with some material aid. I wish I didn't have to ask for it, but I do. I know requests like this come endlessly. I literally get dozens of them daily, overwhelmingly for political candidates, and they get millions in donations in return. Well, I don't need millions. I don't need hundreds of thousands. I don't need tens of thousands. But I do need, let's call it, a few hundred patrons doing what they can to sustain and grow Revolution Z. I hope you will become one of those patrons, giving us a little bit each month. And now, finally, this is Michael Albert, signing off for now for Revolution Z.